beautiful truths sung beautifully to us. About a month or two ago, our family decided that it was not large enough. We needed a, a new pet. So we got a hamster for one of my daughter's birthday. Hamsters are pretty cute looking little animals. And they're furry, little rodent-like animal. Soft little belly. But there is a dark side to hamsters. They will bite you. And it will hurt when they bite. They do stink. And if you're not careful, they will escape the cage. And they can be difficult to find once escape. And then you have a new set of concerns. Um, like what if the animal does not get water and food? It will die. And it will be very gross. You know, these are things I've never had to entertain. I just thought, well, hamsters are cute and cuddly. You see them in the pet store, and they're kind of funny. But once you have intimate experience with hamsters, you introduced are introduced to the dark side of a hamster. You know, sometimes we view someone, and our first impressions are they are sweet and nice. And we do that with a collective group of folks, such as the church. And we'll view them as, you know, that will be just a wonderful place to be. I'll be encouraged. We'll sing wonderful songs. I'll hear inspirational things and, and, and on a weekly basis. And that will be a healthy and good environment. And then we become a part of a church. And we get introduced to the dark side of the church. And we'll realize well, you know, the people here are just as stubborn as the ones that are outside of a church family. They can be just as cranky, just as irritable, and sometimes I find them disagreeable. All right, that's the church, because that's human. And a church is still a collection of humans. And it really is quite amazing when you think about it. When you look just in this room, there are people from different parts of the world, different parts of our country here. Some of you have different church backgrounds, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational. And then there are some that said, you know, I never went to a church at all till I came here. But we all meet here. And then you add into that mix personalities. Uh, some of you are more merciful and gentle. Some of you are more this is black and this is white uh, and harsh. Uh, and then you add into it uh, uh, your own family experiences. Some of you had a mother and daddy. Some of you wished you didn't have the mothers and dads that you had. Some of you wished you had moms or dads to begin with. And you have all these backgrounds. It's amazing that Green Pines has existed as long as it has, when you consider that. And we all come together and we say we're going to work for the same purposes and we're going to learn to work with one another. Can you see the explosion? Can you see the possibility for fireworks and bitings that might happen? Uh, and we're all in the same cage together. Well, this is no different from any church that has existed from Paul's day till today. 
It's no different what country you reside in. These are the same issues we deal with. And so Paul, knowing that, wrote some words of instruction about how to deal with one another and their differences. Romans 14. We started last week. We'll continue uh, today and we'll look at this as well as chapter 15 next week. Uh, before this, we looked at the issue of 2 Timothy 2 and dealing with the repentance and confronting one another in these regards. These are things that are necessary. Uh, you know, if we want to be a loving church, if we want to tell Hodge Road and concentrate love out loud on, on Hodge Road and say, we want to love you, we want to be a servant for you, we've got to figure out how to do this with one another and be loving toward one another. And so this is very critical uh, for us. Last week, we looked at what a grace-filled green pines will do with the, the main action of respecting each other's personal conviction. Uh, and we looked at the reasons why as we looked at Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At the very beginning, verses 1 and verse 3 says, Welcome him. And the verse 3, for God has welcomed him. We learned that one reason we respect personal conviction is that we are to have uh, no more narrow restrictions of acceptance than God has. Uh, that we receive these. Whom God has received. Verse 4. We realize that each person is a servant to their master. Therefore they will be held and accountable for their personal convictions to God. And not to one another. You see that in verse uh, 4. Then we see uh, that uh, verse 5. That each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Convinced of what? Verse 6. That it is an honor of the Lord. You couple that with verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. We learn that each person's personal conviction is private property. It is between them and God that they deal with these matters. Uh, and then we, we see that uh, we keep on reading that none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. That if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and live again that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. So don't pass judgment on your brother or don't despise him. For we will stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we come to verse 13 and he continues to give us more instruction. We looked at the first action last week. We're going to look at four other actions That a grace-filled green pines will do. Remember the book of Romans. If you start reading it. You read the first three chapters. It's intended to thoroughly condemn you. Doesn't matter what your background is. The response is. I am deserving of the holy wrath of God. Romans chapter 4. Chapter 5. Comes in and tells us. Yes you are deserving of the wrath of God. But God has given grace. And you have access to this grace. By faith. And you can be forgiven. You can be made righteous. And you don't have to have condemnation in front of you. And so the idea is that we will surrender to God. In Romans chapter 6, the Spirit of God comes in and resides within us to give us instruction, help us to walk with God. Romans 7 tells us, but even still, you still have your old nature of sin, a part of you, and it will struggle. Romans 8 says that there can be victory. There can be the sense that the Spirit of God Uh, can have victory. You don't have to do what your flesh instinctively tells you to do uh, because there is a sovereign, all-powerful God as demonstrated in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 that God still has a purpose for Israel and his his sovereignty in chapter 11. And in chapter 12, you get the idea that because of all this, 
All the mercies of God. If you believe that all have sinned, if you believe that, uh, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, God will, uh, will forgive you. If you believe these things, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And this begins the outworkings of the mercies of God in everyday life. Uh, if we get to chapter 13, you have the submission to the authorities. But you notice, uh, if you read verse 10... Love is the fulfilling of the law. So chapter 10, or 13 rather, tells us live by love. Chapter 14, okay, let this principle be the governing principle among the family of God. How do you love one another when you don't agree with them about some issues? And so that's where we find ourselves in verse 13. I knew we'd get here eventually. So verse 13, let's stand as we read together. We'll read from verse 13 to verse 19. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You may be seated. Looked last time. Well, what's he talking about clean and unclean? Remember, the context seems to be of a, a Jewish community where around them there are people who are eating meat, food that had been once previously offered up in some form of worship to an idol. These Jews had a real hard time eating that food. I think that Paul elaborates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It is a good companion text to read in addition to this. And in that he says, you know what? We as believers know that everything belongs to the Lord. All the fullness of this world belongs to the Lord. And so consequently, you can eat this food in good conscience because you know it belongs to God. But perhaps you may not or should not because there's someone around you that doesn't want to eat this and feels like if they eat it, they're partaking in the worship. So for their conscience, don't, don't indulge yourself with something you know you can do, but maybe you shouldn't do. It's not helpful to them. And so that's the context here as, as we look in this situation. Now, personal convictions. Let me just qualify. Personal convictions do not reside in that area where a guy clearly says to the word of God, do or do not do. Personal convictions lie in that area where it may not be clearly direct in the word of God, but there are principles you can take to apply to a situation. Just in the realm of thinking, I'm not talking about prejudices. Prejudice might be where someone says that men are better drivers than women. That's a prejudice. An opinion might be that President Obama should or should not have proposed a health reform, a health care reform. Theories are something where you say, uh, well, I think if I take this vitamin C, it will reduce my chance of getting sick. Uh, knowledge or understanding is a statement like, well, area is length times width. It's just a, a knowledge, understanding. A biblical doctrine 
is something where it says that uh, God is all-knowing. He is omniscient. This is something clearly revealed in the Word of God. We're not talking about doctrines. We're not talking about biblical principles, such as what you might find in Romans 14, 23 at the end, where it says, for whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a biblical principle. Or we're not talking about biblical statements, such as all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's not up for debate. The Bible declares that. Nor are we talking about commands where it says flee from idolatry or flee from sexual immoralities. We don't have to wonder about that. But convictions, according to Webster, is nonetheless a strong persuasion or a belief. We're not saying they're not important. They are important to us. But they're not important in pertaining to salvation. Okay? Uh, And so it is something... That is, we infer, it impacts how we act. It is, uh, it does not, listen, it does not define what is right and what is wrong. God's word defines what is right and what is wrong. It is a matter of conscience, okay? It's a matter of conscience that which God puts into your life to, to help you discern between right and wrong. But it's also, very importantly, a matter of faith. Okay, it is a matter of faith. For someone to come this morning with a suit and tie, for them it was a matter of faith, it was a matter of worship because they were taught and they believe that they will dress their best for worship. That is, for them, a matter of faith, a matter of worship. Uh, it is also, Christians' convictions are reflection of your strengths and weaknesses based on what you know about the Word of God. And so, uh, these are some, some things that we need to keep in mind. Okay? I'm going to hit some hot button issues. Some of you won't like this, but I think it just helps us to understand what we're talking about. All right? So, let's go to verse 13. Uh, the first thing we know is that we are to respect personal convictions. But verse 13 tells us something else. It says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Okay? So when you look at the actions of someone else, you just have to make room. You've got to make room for the fact that someone can disagree with you about a certain issue of behavior. And it's okay. It's okay. I'm telling you, it's okay. It it is their ability to worship God. Now here is our temptation. We hear the word of God, we hear the principles of God, we have our traditions, and we think this is how we must live. So, when someone disagrees with me, they are breaking the law. And so what we've done is we've gone from personal conviction to a universal rule. A universal rule, okay? Uh, when I was visiting uh, with some Maasai believers in Kenya, uh, we were talking, and they were just kind of curious about what believers believe here. And they said... Do Christians, where you live, eat pig? I was like, oh yeah. (laughs) No problems eating pig. And they were astounded. Really? Not here. Any good believer here would not eat pig. All right, you didn't know that. (laughs) But that's, I didn't, I didn't stop associating with them. And I didn't try to argue with them. Um, I enjoyed working with them, and I refrained from eating pig. I didn't know barbecue that week, you know. Uh, 
And so that was just what we did. But our temptation is, is we do like them and we think, okay, this must be a universal truth. There will be no, uh, no eating of pig. Any good believer. And we will do the same. Any good believer will dress their best for worship. Okay? Uh, we'll apply that. But what we've done is we've moved from grace and we've applied a rule to the gospel. And we start to add to the gospel and we get within the same realm that the Pharisees were in. And making personal convictions into rules and condemning Jesus because he didn't fit into their mold of what they thought should be done. Can you see the danger in this? And I'm not saying it's wrong to dress your best. As you can see, I try. I work hard all right, to look good. Some of us, it's easier than others. All right? But it's, it's one thing to say, this is what I'm going to do. But it's one thing to say to everyone else, if you're going to be a good Christian, you're going to do the same. You've stepped and crossed the line because of the implication is if you're not dressed like I am, if you don't listen to the music that I listen to, then you are not a good Christian and we are guilty of what verse 13 is warning us. We are passing judgment on someone else. But rather, what are we to do? Decide. Uh, that word decide is the word judgment. Don't pass judgment, but make a judgment. Never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a believer. So a grace-filled green pines will have the attitude that I will refuse to be a stumbling block. I will refuse to be a stumbling block. And this is something Paul hit on in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, everything's lawful for me, but not everything is profitable for me to do. There are all things that we can do. There's a manner of activities and things that we can partake in. But we are not governed by what we are allowed to do. But we are governed instead by what is loving to do. I've just observed that it's hard to say within the same sentence that I will technically do something. And at the same time lovingly do something. Usually, I'm trying to make amends for my guilty conscience how I'm not loving someone, and I'll justify it by saying, technically, I'm right. Just my observation. This isn't always true, but seems to be that way. C.H. Spurgeon was one of the great preachers in the 1800s of London, uh, and uh, it is some interesting uh, ways that he, he would preach and uh, and live and it's said that D.L. Moody, which was another great evangelist from America, uh, had an encounter with C.H. Spurgeon. They were shocked at one another. Uh, D.L. Moody was shocked that C.H. Spurgeon was sitting there smoking uh, a cigar and just made some comments about it. And C.H. Spurgeon then patted the belly of D.L. Moody, which was not skinny, you know, and, and made the same observation about him, which <laughs> Spurgeon was no skinny man either. Uh, but it's been said, there's a statement by him that said that he smoked cigars to the glory of God. He said, you know, this is just what I want to do. And I'm going to smoke them to the glory of God. And I don't think he was aware of all the uh, dangers uh, that we are aware of today. Uh, but he did this until he saw an advertisement that said, the cigars that Spurgeon smoked. And it hit him at that point that his liberties... Are now have, have become a stamp of endorsement in which someone else can follow his example. And he asked, had to ask himself, do I want to live this way that others will also live 
this way as well. I had given to you in your bulletin a list of questions to ask yourselves and regarding areas that are not clearly spelled out in scriptures. And these are good questions to ask yourself uh, when you've got a question. The fact that you have a question about a behavior is probably a bad sign <laughs> right there. But if you have a question about a behavior or something you partake in, something that you, uh, that you eat in, uh, eat or uh, you practice an action, these are good questions to ask yourself with the scriptures that you seek uh, uh, to sincerely make a judgment about this. James 4.17 says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. If it is a good thing to refrain from a behavior, then the fact that you know that and you don't do it becomes an act of sin. So, you know... If someone's really stumbling with with the fact that I may not wear ties to church and it messes them up. I'm not trying to persuade them because that's a matter between them and God. So for me as a pastor, it's not a big deal. Put something around my neck, put a coat on and then they'll listen. (laughs) That's a good deal. That's a good deal. And so you refuse to be a stumbling bonk. But as we keep on reading, in verse 14, I know and am persuaded of the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, what he's saying here, it it alludes back to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 15 through 19. And that he was, Jesus was dealing specifically with the issue of food and what they eat. And he said, you know, It's not what you put into your body that will defile a person. But what comes out of that person that defiles that person. And he talks about that same statement here uh, that that is pure to those who are pure and unclean to those who are unclean. And so he's he's bringing out a truth that he's uh, applying specifically to this situation. That this food is of the Lord. It's clean. But if you think it's unclean and it bothers you, you shouldn't eat it. Now, the thought is, is just because you think something's right doesn't make it right. I could think adultery is right all day long, but it doesn't make it right. But what he's saying here is, if you think eating this meat is wrong, then it becomes wrong for you. All right? And so this is something that he's, he's bringing out, uh, that he's pre- being persuaded that nothing is unclean, but just because it's lawful doesn't mean that I should do it. Because look at verse 15. Because if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. All right. Now, someone could take this passage, verse 15, 14. Someone could take the passage of Mark chapter 7, verse 15 and 19. They could take the passages of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and they could make an argument, scripturally argument saying, you know, because of this, Jesus made very clear that the food is not unclean. Alcohol is something that I can partake of. And that's their scriptural perspective. Their their personal conviction regarding scripture. Okay? And I don't doubt that there's folks in our church that do that. And that's their their view. But let me just share I don't partake of alcohol, but here's the reason why, is what he says here in verse 15. I want to walk in love, 
And I've asked our deacons, those who are also on staff with us, we don't to drink alcohol because there are those who just in seeing that will be encouraged to partake in it themselves or looking for a reason to partake in alcohol. There may be some addictions that are there or just waiting dormant uh, to express themselves. And all they need is just a pastor walking down the aisle with a, uh, a wine bottle in, in the grocery cart. And they think, whoa, so this is okay. Because they are weak. They're, they do not know the scripture for themselves. And they're weak in their own resolve. And so they'll partake in the alcohol. And I can do great destruction to someone in that case. Now, he's bringing about the situation that one who is being convicted by the Holy Spirit, they shouldn't eat this meat. But here you are, you're just you know, eating away. I mean, you're just you know, nothing left but bones. And they think, well, you know what? This is a, a respected believer. I know what my heart says. It must be wrong. I'm going to bypass what my conscience is telling me. You start sawing away, cutting away. He says the problem there is that they are violating their conscience. And in so doing, their conscience is being seared and being ineffective. And they're developing practices that will harm them. Notice the word it says, destroy the one for whom Christ died. Destroy, that's strong language. But it creates that cycle where they cannot listen to the conscience anymore. And what will they do when the next time the Spirit of God speaks to their heart about some other area and the Spirit of God is now weaker for the fact that they have learned to tune Him out? It becomes a dangerous practice at that point. Now, simply put, don't sear another person's conscience just because you want to engage in your liberty. It's been stated it is better to tolerate another's prejudice than to advocate one's belief at the expense of a breach of love. So lovingly, we may restrain ourselves of a practice. Knowing good and well it's okay for us to do, but we do not do because we do not want to hurt someone else. I had a, before Roscoe, we had a dog named Moby. He was Australian shepherd, very active, smart dog. Problem was, if, if you didn't pay enough attention to him, he would chew things. And that just gets, you know, that just, that's bad. I came out one yard one time. I was going to work on a stump with my axe and came out and my, my beloved hammock was shredded. Pottery barn, beautiful blue, you know, all this kind of, nothing but shreds. Ropes dangling, canvas all torn up. There's no way. You could sit in there and it was drooled all over. I was so angry. Cannot believe it. So I took my axe and I took it and swung as hard as I could on that stump. Y'all were thinking that, right? Y'all got some mean, mean folks if you're thinking something else. And I did it again and again and again until I was flat worn out. And I felt so good that somebody is filling the wrath. It's my axe, my stump, my yard. I can do as I please. Only problem was there's a piece of slab of concrete right next to the stump. And in my haste, in my anger, in my lack of concentration, I hit the concrete slab. And I looked at my axe. 
And it was all mauled and gnawed and nicked and totally dull. This axe has no good purpose anymore. In our desire, in our enthusiasm to practice and say there is liberty and in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, we can destroy someone's conscience. Maul it up. Let me just bring you to this next important act. We, as followers of Christ, as a community of believers in Jesus, we must recognize the value of every person. Notice, the, what is the motivation in verse 15? Notice the end. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The thought is, if God loves them so much, That he sent his son to die for them. If he was nailed on a cross. If he was whipped and scourged. If he was allowed these things to happen. If he was put into the tomb. Because desire of holiness for God. Desire of love for a believer. A person around you. Is it not that big of a deal? To say. I don't want that alcohol drink. If Jesus is willing to die. Is it that big of a deal to say. No I don't need to eat of this meat. Because this person sees it as defiled. And that it will defile him and me. I don't want to hurt this one. God loves him. If he died for him. I can refrain from eating meat. We recognize the value of every person. Now listen. I know we've got differences of opinion about what you wear to church. You need to understand, those of you who believe that you are to dress your best uh, and worship God that way by how you dress, there are others who believe that the church is not a place, that it is not an event. The church is a relationship. It is a community. And that church actually exists not just on Sunday morning, But every day of the week, that they have not left God's house, that everywhere they go is God's house. And they do not have the conviction that they should wear their best. Because if that was to be consistent, they would have to wear a suit every day. Now, is that wrong? No. It's not a question of wrong or right. Do you understand? It's not a question of wrong or right. It is a personal conviction. It honors the Lord. It worships God. Now for those who think, well, you know what? These folks that wear suit and ties, they just need to get up with the times. You need to understand that that what they do is worship of God. Now, is that wrong? It's not an issue of wrong or right. It is an issue of honoring the Lord. But you need to understand That we can sit and worship the God and you can have one person in flip-flops and jeans and a t-shirt and another person in a three-piece suit. You can have one uh, in shorts or pants and another in a dress and they can sit side by side and they can worship the same God with the same spirit and have a clean conscience before God. And it's okay. Why? Because the church is not about what we wear. It is about worshiping God. Now, you can go and you can go to church 
And there can be organ and a piano and stained glass windows. You can go to another place of worship where it can be electric guitars and drums and stage lights. There can even be a fog machine. And both can be worship. Because church, listen, I know in our memories we think of church, organ, piano, and stained glass. Church is not to be consistent of these tools. Nor is it necessarily consistent of fog machines, stage lights, and electric guitars. We recognize the value of every person. And notice verse 16 and 18. It kind of gets to what I'm pointing here. You must, as a church to be grace-filled, Green Pines to be grace-filled, we must remain focused on what's important. Notice how he says this, verse 16. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but righteousness, peace, and joy, and the Holy Spirit. Now, what's he talking about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is not a place, all right? It is, it is that those people who uh, volunteer being uh, under the submission of Christ. You remember the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those who follow that heart desire to say willingly, let God's will be done in my life. I take the king as my king. Let his reign be done. That is the kingdom of God impartial right now. And so those of us who are under that banner of the authority of the king, it is not the marks of what we eat and what we drink that identifies us or is the substance of what we're about. But instead it is to be righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's why I say church is not made up of stained glass windows, of organs and pianos, or electric guitars and drums and fog machines. And we can have both because that's not what the church is existent of. But when the church makes that the point of unity, the church ceases to be a church. What is it then? It's either a museum or it's an entertainment club. But when the focus is righteousness, peace, and joy, and the Spirit of God, surrender to the Spirit of God, then you've got the makings of the kingdom of God. Is that my opinion? No. Is that my personal conviction? No. Is that the clear teaching of Scripture? Read verse 17. That is what Scripture is saying. For them, it is a matter of eating and drinking. For us, it's a matter of what style of music and how we're dressed when we come to church. And you name the other issues. We just need to understand this. Now, when I was in Belarus, we're visiting a church. They, uh, they had communion. And the, the, the drink of the communion was wine. It was alcoholic wine. I honestly have never really drunk any alcohol before. And that was a shock. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> whoa. So he warned me in advance. I was still shocked. Should I have refrained and said, I'm sorry? It's my personal conviction. I don't drink alcohol because I don't want to be a stumbling block to my brothers in America, my sisters in America. I said, no, 
Here's the problem. Communion is not about what I drink and don't drink. It is about much of what this scripture says. Righteousness, peace, joy in the spirit of God is about what Christ has done. And it was more important that I identified with the body of believers there. Than whether or not I wanted to have a clean record as to never drinking alcohol. To be honest with you, what bothered me more was that there was one cup for everybody. But, uh, you know, the deacons did wipe it down with a napkin. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's you got to remain focused on what's important. And that's what we must do as a church. This will help us put up with the quirks, the faults, the faux pas, the little differences that we have in our background. We must understand that the reputation of the gospel is at stake. Do you understand? It does great disgrace to the name when a church splits up over anything less than the gospel. I personally don't think that the denominations that we have is glorifying to God. And nothing I can do about it now. But it's just the evidence of hard-headed people over time. When a church splits up because we can't agree upon some matter of facility or building here, it insults the name of Christ to the whole community. You recognize the value of every person. You remain focused on what's important. The building is not important. It's why we don't have a, a structure where we encourage us as a church to vote on everything that comes up. Because... That brings emphasis on that which divides. That's a surefire way to mess up a church. We want to bring to the church those decisions that are important to us as a church. That which we declare that word teaches us as important. 1917, the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox were in a heated debate over how long the tassels should be on their robes. <laughs> great, great debate. Any of you who know your world history also know that in 1917 there was something going on in Russia called the Bolshevik Revolution. Isn't it amazing what took forefront in the church of that time and what was going on around them? Could it be that they had forgotten what was most important? Let's not be guilty of the same. So when you see someone come in dressed differently, just understand that's between them and God. It's not right or wrong. It's different. When we have different music, I uh, when you know, I mentioned last week we have such a way that we try to anger everybody and that we <laughs> blend the styles of music. And it's okay. If we have the hymn book, that's fine. And what's so sad about this is that that's not even a personal conviction. It's more of a style. But we've exalted it up not only to personal conviction, but to this is right and this is wrong. That's why we as a church, we don't advertise contemporary worship here. We don't advertise traditional worship here. We don't advertise blended worship here. <laughs> because that's not... The mark of our church. 
It should not be the mark of our church. And if that's the reason why you're coming, and I would suggest to you that you have missed the reason for church. Remain focused on what's important. And then, as we keep on reading, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and proved by men. Why? Because these things, verse 17, are done in the Holy Spirit. The real point that needs to be asked is, am I submitting to the leadership of the Spirit of God in my life? And this question of alcohol, I was more concerned if, have you prayed about this? Have you sought scripture? Do you feel the sense of leading of peace and asking these questions that are in that bulletin? Do you have the answers there? And can you drink this and partake in this in a clear conscience? If you do, then that's fine. If you don't, then maybe you shouldn't do it. And apply this in any other area of your life, whether it's tobacco whether or not you should have one earrings or three or five thousand earrings, whether you should have tattoo or no tattoo, whether you should have your crew cut, bald or long. You know? All these questions. You've got to depend on the Spirit of God and seek scriptures. And let love be your guiding principle. And so, verse nineteen, as as we know that we're being led by the Spirit of God, therefore we're acceptable to Christ, to God. And approved by man. So then let us pursue what makes for peace. And for mutual upbuilding. And that's a church structure ought to do that as well. The practices of a church ought to lend itself to pursuing peace. Harmony. Mutual upbuilding. Democracies do not always do that. In fact I would say that they don't. Democracy is more of an American idea than necessarily a biblical idea. And so, what do we do? At grace-filled green pines, not only will we respect the personal convictions of others, not only will we refuse to be a stumbling block, not only will we recognize the value of every person, not only will we remain focused on what's important, it will also seek to edify each other. It will look, it will be intentional, it will desire opportunities to build each other up. And there will be a commitment to say, whatever I do, let me make sure that someone's better for me knowing them. Wouldn't that be great if folks that were joining our church would make that commitment to say, I may not like everyone here and everyone may not like me. We certainly won't agree on everything, but I will commit to love you. If you will commit to love me and I will commit by the help and grace of God to make this community better for me being a part of it. And will you do the same for that person that joins to say. By the grace of God, by his strength, by his help, by the opportunities that come my way, may your life be better. Because I know you. What if. Just five people. And this congregation, I'm shooting low. What if just five people would make a commitment that each week they would write a note of encouragement to somebody? Our email of encouragement just made it their goal every week. Or if just 10 of you would say that every time I meet with the church family, 
I want to be very intentional and I want to make it my goal and I won't be happy and I won't leave until I get this done. I will encourage somebody before I leave. Man, you could change someone's world with goals like that. You could change a whole community with things like that. And I think you follow right in line with what Scripture says in verse 19. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I just want to challenge you to be loving. And don't let your pride get in the way. I understand the folks that will disagree. And can you have room for grace? I hope so, because it seems like you are probably an object of an awful lot of grace from God. And with the grace that he's given you to say, you know what, you're a sinner. I know you. You're prideful through and through. But I forgive you. I love you. I give the spirit of God to change you. I make room for you. And that same spirit that's forgiven you is now residing in your life. And it will help you. He will help you give grace to someone else. Until we do, if we really want to be honest with ourselves, we can't say we're a loving church until we're a grace-filled church. Got to make room. Let's pray.